Hey, we're glad you're here this morning. If you have got a Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 32. Genesis chapter 32, verse 22 and following. So we're going to be reading this morning. We're beginning a short four-week uh, series for Advent called Till He Appeared. And uh, you may recognize that line from, uh, from O Holy Night, the song, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared. And there's these places in Scripture where God appears in a unique way. He shows up. Now, God's always present with us, right? But there are these moments in Scripture where he appears in the visible form to people. And we have a theological term for that. We call it a theophany. Theophany is just uh, two Greek words put together. Theos, God, and phania, which means manifestation or appearance or visitation. And so there's these times where God comes and he visits his people. And at times he appears in different ways. You see him uh, appearing as, as the burning bush to Moses and the cloud by day and the fire, the pillar of fire by night uh, to the Israelites. He comes as a storm as a fire in other ways, as a light. And sometimes he comes in the appearance of a man. And there's different scriptural terms that are used here. Now these are some of, let's be honest, some of the stranger stories of scripture. Uh, as you read them, you're trying to understand what's going on here. Uh, but he often appears as a man and sometimes it's called uh, the angel of God or one like the son of man or the angel of the Lord or sometimes God himself. And the question we sometimes have is, like, who is this person that keeps appearing in these stories in Scripture? And we wonder maybe, is it Jesus? Is it, is it, what I mean by that is, is it the second person of the Trinity that kind of makes cameo appearances you know, throughout the, the Old Testament story? And I don't know that we can answer that question fully. Um, I don't think that that is what's in view necessarily when we look at these scripture passages to say, well, that's Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. But in a very significant way, every time that God appears, and especially when he appears in the form of a man, it is a reminder to us and it lays the groundwork for when he appears. And by he, I mean Jesus. The ultimate culmination of God coming and appearing to his people is, of course, Jesus Christ. As we see it in the story of Luke. So we have this somewhat strange little story this morning about God appearing to Jacob and wrestling with him. And I thought this would be a great place to start because this is a formational story for the people of Israel. Genesis chapter 32 is not written in real time. You know that, right? It was written by Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, and he's writing this story that was true and that was passed down orally, but he wrote it down for a specific purpose to give comfort to the people of God after they've left Egypt. But these events happened long before this, and so Moses tells them today why they get their name, the name Israel, why they're called the sons of Israel and what that means. And so while it's a strange little story in a sense to our ears, it's actually foundational for their identity, for people who are wondering, where do we come from? So let's read this story. This is Jacob 
And when he meets, or he's preparing to meet his brother Esau, and let's read this, Genesis 32, verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children across the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of his joint, out of joint and he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. So I've returned to this uh, YouTube video a number of times. Uh, it's like an old, old for YouTube, I guess, 14-year-old video. It's got 26 million views. I'm guessing a few of those views are, are right here in this room. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's called How the Lord of the Rings Should Have Ended. And uh, there's a whole series of these, like every major blockbuster that comes out, How Whatever Should Have Ended. And these guys basically create animated versions of these movies that last like 30 seconds. <laughs> And, um, and so this one, uh, you know, how the Lord of the Rings should have ended, uh, it, it starts out at the Council of Elrond. If you remember the story from the Fellowship of the Ring, they all gather, all the, you know, Legolas and Gimli and, and uh, the wizards are there at uh, Rivendale, and they're deciding what's going to happen uh, with this one ring that they have to destroy, and they realize that they need to throw it into the fires of Mount Doom. And that starts the beginning of the story. And so that's all we get at the beginning of this YouTube video is just them sitting. It's like, well, that's a crazy plan, but it just might work. And, um, and then we see some, like half of the guys go and they distract the eye, eye of Sauron. <laughs> uh, you're like, hey, you know, look over here. And they're like taunting him. And uh, the eye of Sauron goes and looks at them. And meanwhile, the hobbits and, um, and uh, I just forgot the wizard's name. What? Gandalf. Gandalf and the hobbits fly on the great eagles. And they just fly, and you just see them going off to the side, and the Eye of Sauron's over here, and they fly right over uh, Mount Doom, and Frodo has the ring in his hands, and he goes, whee, and drops it in there, and then the story ends, and the sun is setting as they ride off on the great eagles, and uh, they're talking to each other, and they say, man, that was incredibly easy. You know, uh, can you imagine if we had walked the whole way? And they said, yeah, some of us might have died. And, like, and they're all laughing about that, like, that, was, that would have been dumb. And it highlights one of what many people say is the weakness of the story of the Lord of the Rings, which is the great eagles. 
Because the eagles, if you remember, come in at very key points and they rescue Frodo or they send a message and they seem to be able to outrun the ring wraiths and all this stuff. Like They're just so powerful and they always seem to save the day. And uh, Tolkien himself recognized this, J.R.R. Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. He said that the eagles were a dangerous plot device. Because without them, according to our YouTube friends, there would be no battle of Helm's Deep. There would be no Gollum story. There would be no Aragorn becoming you know, the king of men. And all of the story would be gone if they were as powerful as they seem to be. And so what's the point? The point is this. There is no story without struggle. There's no story without struggle. We know this to be the case. That's what all of those YouTube videos, that series is pointing out. It's like, what if things were way easier than we thought they would be? then there would be no struggle, no story. And the question then comes up, well, why do we love those stories? And do they relate in some kind of way to the story that we happen to be in? Is the story that we are in an easy one or a hard one? And maybe at Christmas time, uh, it's a, question, a live question. As we look at the story of God, and we see this huge drama, not unlike the Lord of the Rings that which is part of why we love that story so much, is that it feeds into this idea of this lifelong struggle and the hope at the end that we all long for. And so I wonder, is it easier, is it harder to be a Christian at Christmas time? In some senses it's easier because there's all these reminders of Jesus everywhere and perhaps we spend more time with family and there's a sense of warmth and maybe we hope a sense of connection, closeness to family. But in another sense, it, it, it belies just this, this deeper, harder thing, which is that our lives are not that easy at all. And what about all the people that we've lost? And what about all the things that I'm going through? What about the hopes and dreams that weren't seemingly met in Jesus that night that we just sang about? The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Is that true? Is that real to my experience? And what, why I love this passage, why I wanted to begin here at Advent, when He appears, there's a struggle. And it's real. Because to be a person of faith means that you struggle with God. Jacob wrestles with God. And he gets this identity placed on him. Israel. Israel means God fights. To fight with God. To wrestle with God. To struggle that becomes his identity. He's, in a word, he's tenacious. What does that word mean? It means that he persistently clings to, holds to something, and doesn't let go. And so, it is with our faith, we have to cling to it. And we're always fighting against two sides of a road here where there's kind of on the one hand an easy beliefism where we say like, oh, we, being a Christian is easy. All you do is say a prayer and then you're, you're saved and you're good forever. And that's, that's one thing that we say. It doesn't have to be very much struggle at all. You don't have to change who you are. You don't have to fight. You don't have to wrestle. And then on the other hand, on the other side of the ditch, there's this other narrative that says, oh no, Christianity is so hard. It's a mountain. You have to climb it. And if you do not persevere and you don't have all this faith, then it won't be enough. And of course, what we're going to say this morning is the gospel is neither one of those things. 
It involves struggle. It is simple in its terms. Jesus saves, not us. But after he does so, there becomes this life of struggle and fight for the faith that we've received from him. And so it's not easy. It's an all-of-life move one time, but it then results in a fight for the rest of our lives. A struggle. And in some sense, the struggle is the identity, just like it was with Jacob. In some sense, to be a Christian means that you struggle with who God is. Here's what I want us to see today. The mark of faith is not how easily or hard it comes, but how tenaciously it remains during struggle. The mark of faith is not how easily or hard it comes. It's different for different people. But how tenaciously it remains during the struggle. Think about the consistent message of Scripture. He says, be faithful to the end. Keep the faith. Do not grow weary in doing good. Those who persevere to the end will be saved. There's, a, there's supposed to be a tenaciousness that we hold on to our faith despite circumstances. And I'm not talking about the amount of faith. We're going to see that a little later. We're not talking about having great faith and being this really powerful person. It's whatever faith you've been giving, you guard that tenaciously, like Jacob does. So let's look at what Jacob does and to see how we might have a tenacious faith, a faith that clings, that holds on to, that fights. Number one, how do we have a tenacious faith? Number one is this, we face God and the real world. We face God and the real world. This is what it means to be a tenacious person of faith. Because we see Jacob here, he's left alone. Look at verse 22. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now this is Jacob putting the finishing touches on the plan that he already has unrolled. His plan is to meet his brother alone. Esau and Jacob are enemies at this point. He's meeting his brother for the first time in many years. And the last time he saw him, it did not go well. (laughs) If you remember the story, Jacob whose name means deceiver, supplanter. He stole his, the birthright and the blessing from his father. Uh, instead of Esau receiving that, Jacob received that. He tricked his father into giving him the blessing and the birthright. And Esau, when he found out that there was no blessing left for him, the Bible says he sought for it with tears, by the way. He, he sought for this blessing, but the blessing had been given. And then Esau vows... The next time that he sees Jacob, he will kill him. So, anybody else anxious to see family at the holidays? (laughs) Not this anxious, right? There's literally a vow. And we know something about Jacob. He's soft-skinned. He's kind of wimpy, right? Esau is manly. We're told these descriptions in the Scriptures. And Esau is coming towards him with 400 men. And this, Jacob is putting the finishing touches on his plan. He's been sending out gifts in stages to Esau, gifts of, of livestock. And by the end, he's given him 550 animals. It's just an amazingly kingly gift. Now, Jacob's really wealthy at this point. And 
But this had to come close to bankrupting him. He, he sent all of these gifts ahead of him. And so you can imagine Jacob, now he's putting the finishing touches. He says, now you family go across this river and I'm going to stand in the gap here. And so Jacob is literally, he has everything that he has to offer is in front of him. All of his wealth. And everything that he loves behind him. And he's standing there in the gap. And that is where God wrestles with him. Now you have to ask yourself, why is Jacob doing this? Why is he doing this? Does he have to meet Esau? No. He actually signaled to Esau that he wanted to meet him. He's been living for years with his uncle Laban. He's been growing rich. Jacob set out to do this, to meet his brother Esau. It's not a geographical necessity. He could have gone around. Look, he, he did not have to do this, but he reaches out to him, and now Esau is coming with 400 men. Now what's happening there? Jacob is maturing. He's growing up. He is, he's, he's bridging a gap there that exists in his life. He's facing the real world. He knows that he's been on the run for all of these years and that he has been a deceiver. And so as we see in the story as it goes, he's growing up. He's facing his fears. He's ready to stop deceiving and make things right. And even though that's true, it's still very fearful for him. But he believes that it's a necessity. And so Jacob's in there alone and he faces, he's facing his fear, but at the same time he faces God. That's where he meets the face of God, is in that struggle. So God appears to him in the form of a man, and they wrestle until daybreak. And then in verse 26, the man says, let me go, for the day has broken. Why? This is, this is nighttime, right? He doesn't want him to see his face, the face of God. The face of God is a huge theme in Scripture. This is one of those, there's minor themes, there's major themes. This is a major theme, the seeking the face of God. Moses wants to see the face of God, and God says, I'll pass by you and can look from the cleft of the rock. You can't see me face to face. Huge theme, all the way to Jesus Christ, who the New Testament tells us is, has been revealed to us in the face of Jesus Christ, the glory of God has. And so J Jacob meets God here face to face, and he lives because they're in the darkness. And that's in fact, when he names the place Peniel, in the name of the place in verse 30, it means, that means face of God, because this is where he met him. Interestingly, right after this, when, spoiler alert, Esau doesn't kill him. <laughs> And then Jacob says to him, when I see your face, Esau, it's like I'm seeing the face of God. And you see, he's tying that, that together. He's like, I met God face to face. And then it transformed the hard thing, the fearful thing that I have into a meeting with God. And he's forever changed. His name is changed. He no longer is called Jacob. The man tells him, your name's not going to be deceiver, supplanter, cheater. Because you turned and you faced God and you faced the real world. Now your name is Israel, the one who wrestles with God. 
And that's our desired transformation as well. To go from the schemers that we tend to naturally be, the ones who want to arrange everything in our world and always try to get ahead, to people who actually say, no, I'm going to turn and face whatever the Lord has put in my path, and I'm going to meet Him there. I'm going to seek His face in the face of the things that I'm afraid of. We live in the real world. We, live, we don't just run, live our lives running from things. We turn and we face them. That's a tenacious faith. To turn and face the thing that is hardest, the thing that's looming the, the largest to you. Like it was to Jacob, he didn't have to do it, but he did it and he met God there. That's Christianity. To meet God in the struggle where He has you. So he faces God and he faces the real world. But secondly, Jacob shows his tenacious faith because he holds on until he's blessed. So that's the second thing. Hold on until you are blessed. Now you have to imagine the actual wrestling here, um, which is just kind of crazy to think about. But there's no lights anywhere, right? They're not seeing each other. If somebody comes in the darkness and, I don't know, just tackles them out of nowhere, and they, they begin to wrestle and we're told that 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 happens all night until the day breaks. They're wrestling. And so you have to imagine this fight, this sweating, this pinning down, getting tired, taking a break, going at it again. You know, they just fought all night long. And it says that Jacob prevailed. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now that's a very interesting verse, isn't it? Because it says Jacob prevailed, but then the dude just like zapped him, you know? Um, and so like, what's going on here? What does it mean? Is Jacob stronger than the presence of God? Is that why he prevailed? No, of course not. Why not? Well, the guy with one touch dislocates his hip. And so he's shown that he can do this. What does it mean that Jacob prevailed? It means that he, the man saw, God saw, that he didn't give up. That's what it means to prevail. He didn't give up. And so he pushes him verbally, you know, let me go. And then, and then Jacob will not let him go. That's, he's tenacious. And so he touches his hip, but still Jacob won't let go. Even though he's suffering now, even though he's crying at this point, now we know he's crying. Hosea, the prophet, tells the story again. And there's this beautiful phrase in Hosea chapter 12, verse 4, where it says this, Jacob strove with the angel of the Lord. He wept and sought his favor. You have to imagine Jacob. He's sweaty, he's tired, he's holding on for dear life, he's crying, but he won't let him go. That's what a tenacious faith does. It holds on. It holds on even when you don't understand. It holds on when you, when you feel like you can't fully trust. It holds on when you are not sure how it's going to end up. It holds on through tears and heartache and loss and doubts and rejection and loss. Whatever the struggle is, wherever you're meeting the face of God is where you're called to hold on. That's what faith does. Now, I just need to say this clarification because I know that that some people, when they hear this, they think you're saying that I have to have a lot of faith, that I have to be this amazing person, and then, then God will accept me or something like that. That's not what I'm saying at all. If that is what I was saying, and if that was what the Scriptures were saying, we would use some other kind of example than Jacob. 
Jacob is the deceiver. Jacob is like, he's like the anti-patriarch, you know? Like, he doesn't have near the faith of Isaac, his father, or Abraham, his grandfather. He's shown over and over again how little faith he has. He's a deceiver, and yet he's the one who gets the namesake for the people of God. Why? Not because he had a lot of faith, but because he held on to the little that he had. And Jesus tells us, what kind of faith do you need to trust in me? It's the faith of a mustard seed, right? It's the smallest of all seeds, he says. The smallest amount of faith. It's not about the amount of faith. It's about tenaciously guarding the faith that you do have and not letting go. What does it mean to hold on to God even in struggle? What does that mean? It means at least this. That you're taking God as the given. What does that mean? He's the, he's the, he's the given in any situation. He is the one that you're not going to fluctuate on this point. No matter what happens, no matter what loss you're experiencing, no matter what doubts you're experiencing, no matter how much you don't understand what the Scriptures say or you find yourself disagreeing with them or whatever it may be, you're, you're not going to fluctuate on this point. You're going to still keep your faith. Another tenacious person with faith is Job, of course. Job who lost everything. He lost his family. He lost his wealth. He lost his position. And Job says something in, in Job chapter 13, 15, which doesn't make any sense unless you see it through the eyes of faith. This is what he says. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. That doesn't make any sense if you are a supplanter deceiver. If your whole goal in life is to get the best that you possibly can and live your best life now and have everything, that does not make sense to say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Job took God as the given. All these other things can change, but this can't fluctuate. I'm not losing my faith. I know that my Redeemer lives, he says. I know that. I'm not, I'm not fluctuating on anything around that. And so it's not having a lot of faith. It's tenaciously holding on to what you do have through tears, through misunderstanding, through doubts, through loss, through fear. That's what it means to have a tenacious faith. Thirdly, what it means to have a tenacious faith is that you lead with your limp. You lead with your limp. This is verse 29. Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. And he said, why is it that you asked my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel. For I've seen the face of God, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Now you have to imagine, again, the battle is over. He's been wrestling all night. Jacob emerges prevailing, meaning he held on. He's bloody, he's tired, and now he's going to be, have a limp for the rest of his life. He's exhausted. And yet now he's ready to fight Esau. Isn't that amazing to think about? He wrestled with God all night. 
so that he could face Esau. He's ready to face him. He's bloody, but he's blessed, you might say, right? I mean, he's, he's already fought the bigger battle. He wrestled with God. And now he's limping away from it, but he knows that he's blessed. He's received the blessing of God. He knows how this story is going to end. It's not going to end in a bad way. Why? Because he already has the blessing of God. If God is for us, who can be against us? He already secured the favor of God. He sought for it with tears, Hosea said, and God gives it to him. And so now he limps toward his problem, toward his fear. And that limp is going to stay with him the rest of his life. Every day it's going to be a reminder of of his limitation. I didn't prevail because I was stronger than God. He could have taken me out at any moment. I didn't prevail because I was stronger than God. I prevailed because he blessed me. Even though I was weak and just holding on to him, he blessed me. And you have to remember the context. This was written by Moses. And he's writing this to the people of Israel. They're 500 years past when this happened. And they're out there in the wilderness. And they're about, they've been given this promise for the promised land. And then, so there's this editorial comment that, that Moses gives us. This is, this is why Israelites do not eat the sinew of the hip on the animal. Now, they know that already. They know that they don't do that. This is 500 years later. This is a custom already. They know that they don't do that when they eat the animal, but they don't necessarily know why. And he's telling them why. This is not a, just a mere ritual. This is for you to remember that you lead, that this whole thing is based on the limp of your leader. And if you follow God, if you are an Israelite, if you are the one who wrestles with God, it's only because God blessed Jacob in his weakness. And if you follow him, it's only because he's blessing you and your weakness, he says to Israel. And if you, people of God in this room, who have now been, the story of Scripture tells us, been grafted into this story, now you are the sons and daughters of Israel. Now you are his, Abraham's children, and you are Israel. You're the ones who wrestle with God. And if you prevail, if you hold on to the end, it's only because God has blessed you and given you that gift. Martin Luther says in The Mighty Fortress is Our God, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Our striving, even though we wrestle with God, we wouldn't prevail unless He blessed us. The great leaders of the faith, the great stories of the Scripture are always men and women who led with a limp, meaning they fronted their limitations. They said, I'm not worthy of this. I'm not prevailing because I'm stronger. I'm prevailing because you decided to bless me. All the way, the great men and women of the faith, all the way to John the Baptist, who was the greatest man who ever lived. Jesus told us that. There's never been anybody born, he says, that's better than John the Baptist. And yet what did John the Baptist say about himself? I am not the Christ. I'm not worthy to tie the the leather of his sandal. See, he led with the limp. It's not about me. It's about what's coming. It's, It's about when he appeared. When he appears, Jesus himself, he brings the kingdom of God. He brings the climax of history. 
He brings what it means to be a full human being. And he brings a struggle, a wrestle. Because you need to wrestle with who Jesus is to have this faith to be yours. You have to hold on to him. Not your own faith. Not the amount of your faith. You have to cling to him and what he has done for you. Do you believe that no matter what you're going through, whatever loss, heartache, experience you're you're having right now, whatever fears, doubts, fill in the gap. Wherever you need to meet the face of God, that the best way to meet him there is holding on to Jesus. His perfection. His goodness. Because those who hold on to the end are saved. That means the ones who cling to Jesus, who are not trusting themselves, they're the ones who prevail. No matter what else is going on, no matter what else is looming large, that's what you keep holding on to. I found this uh, letter from my dad this last couple weeks ago. And um, I was cleaning out our shed. <laughs> you know, we have a shed in the backyard and perpetually needs to be decluttered and was going through a lot of old files and stuff, and this letter fell out I have from my dad um, from 18 years ago. And uh, I'll just read you a little bit of it. Uh, He said, Gray, I woke up this morning hurting in my spirit for you. I feel the disappointment you experienced yesterday. I've had days like that too. I have prayed to the Lord that he will restore your spirit and the joy of your salvation. You can't begin to know how grateful I am that he has saved you at such a young age and that you are maturing spiritually at a rapid rate. He is answering my prayers from many years ago. Remember this morning that the Lord Jesus is with you and that he is sovereign in all things. Even disappointment and hurt are completely under his control and used by him to mold us into more holy people. And he goes on from there. This is dated December of 2002. It's Christmas. And there's some things that this letter tells me. I mean, it tells me that I have an amazing dad, for one. And I know that. But the truth is, I have no idea what this letter is about. I don't... Christmas 2002, I don't remember what I shared with him that caused such... Caused him to wake up in the morning and to pray for me and to write me a letter. Something was looming large, something about something that was extremely disappointing. I don't know if it was a breakup or or what. I just don't remember. And I, I'm gonna ask him this week, but I, I doubt he remembers either. It's not to make light of whatever was going on. This something was real to me. Something was looming large in 2002, and I don't know what it was. But now I have my own set of fears, my own set of disappointments, my own hard things that I'm working through right now. It's changed. It's Christmas 18 years later, but in many ways it's the same. But I know that I have a father who cares for me, right? And who was with me in that moment when something was looming large. And so the, the answer is, whatever is looming large, whatever is the struggle, whatever is the doubt, whatever the thing that you are just wrestling with, you're not sure where you should go, 
it's not, the fa- it's not the case that we just forget about those things, that we move on, or that faith means that somehow we, we just push those to the side. This, of all times, is a place for us to really wrestle with things this time of year. As a lot of stuff gets uncovered, and remember a lot of things, and we feel a lot of things. This is a good time to wrestle with God. But we hold on. We hold on. I know, no, no matter what that was, I have this relationship with my dad. And that's preserved for longer. Now, I know many people don't have that. But you do have a Heavenly Father. And when he appears, when Jesus appeared, he secured that connection with us and brought us into his family. And so now we wrestle, we wrestle with God from a place of safety and security and who he is, not in who we are. And so the thing that's looming large to you is another opportunity to turn and face him, to meet him in the middle of that struggle, to know things about him, to wrestle through them with faith without letting go. You know the thing that we pray for you for, we prayed at our staff retreat we had just a couple of weeks ago. We prayed that God would preserve the faith of this church. That even though people are wrestling and struggling, I know many of you are, that you wouldn't walk away from Him because of the struggle, but rather you would meet Him there in the struggle. You wouldn't give up, but you would prevail with faith, the faith that was given to you by God himself. Let's pray. Thank you that we have met you. Those of us who have in this room face to face in the person of Jesus Christ. That we don't have to be left outside of the good news. The history of redemption can be ours. We can face you and face whatever's going on. And though you slay us, or though lots of bad things happen, we hold on to the end. Pray that you would give us that kind of staying power, that you would make us faithful people. You would strengthen our faith so that we don't fall away when we struggle. Rather, we are strengthened. We know that whatever comes, you are there. And that that would become, in a sense, our identity. Those who wrestle with God and hold on. In Jesus' name, amen.